Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Should we start out by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors? Yes, we should. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We just uploaded a few new episodes to Patreon. Yeah. So you should. I saw there was 122 posts we've made. We've made 122 Patreon episodes? Yeah. Well, that's so many. You better head over there and check it out. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) This week we had Tashi, Mountain Murders, Chelsea, VE, Annie, Tasha, Pamela, Angel, Anthony, Tia, Brianne, Erica, John, Emily, Joseph, Holly, Jeannie, and Corrine. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. So this week we are going to discuss the case of Charles Starkweather, who went on a killing spree in January of 1958 with his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate. This case inspired the movie, um, the Terrence Malick film, Badlands, during Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen. That's from the early 70s. It's like a classic it's like a Criterion collection type movie. As it, it's one of those movies that like every shot is beautiful. Yeah, it's a stunning. I mean, if you know Terrence Malick, his his movies all are gorgeous. Yeah, uh, but this one also has a really great story and great performances by the leads. This this story also inspired um, the movies Natural Born Killers and California. And there's an amazing TV movie based on this story starring uh, Feruza Balk and Tim Roth. Did you see that? I didn't. I think it's called like Murder in the Heartland or something. Oh. It's very good. I love Tim Roth. I mean, like both of them. Yeah. But I love Tim Roth. So here's the real story. My sources were a book called Starkweather by William Allen. I also watched a bunch of videos that are on YouTube about this case, including interviews with Carol. Uh, There was a an episode of this show called Crimes and Criminals that has like a lot of her life in prison, if you're interested in that kind of thing. There was also a lot of articles from the Lincoln Journal. So Charlie Starkweather was born in Lincoln, Nebraska on November 24th, 1938. He was the third of seven children that, I'm sorry, that Guy and Helen Starkweather had. Now, despite being poor, by all accounts, the family life was very happy. The parents were hardworking and perfectly fine parents. And Charles himself described his childhood as happy. Um, His dad described Charles as being a polite boy and a very helpful child. But things for Charles started getting more rough when he entered school. He had a speech impediment, and he was also bow-legged. He was mercilessly teased for those things. It didn't help that he was also pretty short, like he reached 5'5 by the time he was 19, and he had really crazy red hair. I mean, just like a lot of things that kids are going to pick on, right? So 
Uh, Making things even more difficult for Charles was the fact that he was deemed to be a slow learner. So he probably had a learning disability that's just not something that was taken into consideration back then. Look, it's still not... It yeah. handled great. Yeah. So, but back then it was like even more like, ah, that's, oh, well, right. you're a slow learner. Yeah, right. He also had severe myopia and wasn't diagnosed with that until he was 15. Like he couldn't even read the E on the eye chart, like the big letter. Right. So no doubt that that also was a contributing factor to him being a poor student. I mean, that's a classic thing where the kid won't say that he can't read the blackboard or something. Right, right. Um, but... He was good at athletic endeavors. He was the kid who, like, his gym was his favorite class. That was, like, my least favorite class. (laughs) Just, like, I'm, like, the classic kid who just stood on the sidelines, like, fucking pissed in gym. Like, I'm not doing that. Uh, He was very well-coordinated and very strong, despite being sort of on the small side. Because strength was his only talent, it was the way he retaliated against the people who bullied him (laughs) for all of his problems. Now, this led to him getting into a lot of fights in school. According to the book, quote, he blamed all of his fights on being made fun of as a child. Sometimes his battles were brief outbursts of violence, but other times they were frenzied and prolonged, not ending until they were broken up or his opponent lay senseless. He earned a reputation for being one of the meanest, toughest kids in Lincoln. Now, in ninth grade, he got into a fight with a kid named Bob Von Bush. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize that was funny sounding until I said it out loud. That's a great name. It is a good name. It sounds like a ball player, right? Bob Von Bush. Like with a huge mustache. You got it. Like a 70s Cardinals player or something. <laughs> <laughs> now, they became but, like best friends after beating the shit out of each other. Like It was one of those things where they beat the shit out of each other. Like, hey, we have a lot in common. <laughs> Bob said of him, quote, he could be the kindest person you've ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you. He was a hell of a lot of fun to be around too. Everything was just one big joke to him, but he had this other side. He could be mean as hell, cruel. If he saw some poor guy on the street who was bigger than he was, better looking or better dressed, he'd try to take the poor bastard down to his size. Now, one of the things the boys bonded over was their mutual obsession with James Dean. Charlie tried to imitate everything about James Dean, his like mannerisms, the clothes he wore, his hairstyle, like he wore like the leather jacket, the tight jeans. He had like that kind of, I guess it's a pompadour, but James Dean is not quite a pompadour. It's like in in between, right? He also loved cars and he did chicken races and he would always win the chicken races because he would never not, he would never give anyone the satisfaction of pulling away for first. He also did uh, drag racing. Now, the character he really related to was obviously the character from Rebel Without a Cause. Um, Charlie was also very moody, and he felt isolated in this, you know, whatever, small town. He was definitely sick of being held back by this bullshit town and the adults in it. He was very sensitive and kind of embarrassed about the poverty he lived in, and he kind of began to see like no escape for himself. So he really fantasized about getting out of um, Lincoln, Nebraska. He really would see like this grim future ahead of him, getting some pathetic, meaningless job in Lincoln, having a wife and kids, and then just fucking dying like a Bruce Springsteen (laughs) song, basically. He wanted something more. But what? When Bob Von Bush began dating Barbara Fugate in 1956, Charlie found his purpose. Barbara's younger sister, Carol, who had just turned 13. 
Now, when Bob introduced them, Bob said grossly, she looks five years older. <laughs> like Charlie is like 18 at this time. So it's like kind of a big age difference. Uh, the four of them would double date on a steady basis, despite the fact that Carol was like so much younger. I mean, that's such a huge 13 to 18. I think when you're that age, it's a bigger age gap difference. Oh, yeah. I mean, five years doesn't make much of a difference at many ages older, but that 13 to 18 is just so... But they did have some things in common. Carol was also a bad student. <laughs> she had a rebellious streak and she had a temper. She cursed a lot. She was also annoyed by not getting the attention she felt like she deserved. Her mom had remarried after divorcing her dad, and she had a new baby sister, a two-year-old named Betty Jean. Now, she was pretty, and Charles was, Charles was smitten with her, probably because she idolized this older man and made him feel like a king. Classic age difference type relationship dynamics happening here. <laughs> Uh, seriously. Now, Carol's parents were obviously not thrilled about this relationship. By this point, Charles was also a high school dropout with seemingly no future. Now, according to the book, quote, she was impressed by his cars, his toughness, his looks, and despite his poverty, the way he could give her almost anything she wanted. Charlie said that Carol meant more to him than anything had before. Without her, he would be thrust back into the world he hated so much. Carol almost even made him stop hating himself. He saw himself as reflected in her eyes and he looked good. Now, Charlie at this point had a low-wage warehouse job and no surprise, a bad attitude at work. His boss fucking hated him and Charlie hated his boss. According to the boss who went on stand later, he would say on stand, sometimes you'd have to tell him something two or three times. Of all the employees in the warehouse, he was the dumbest man we had. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't Charlie just get into stand-up? Seriously? Yeah. I mean, Charles, by the way was like the person who always felt slighted by everything. Like he complained that everyone got more credit than him. Like he was just never getting the credit that he was due. That's what I'm saying. He could have been one of those angry comics. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he, it's like the classic guy like these comics who do nothing but want validation for everything and for being great. Like, but there's a market for that, Desi. Totally. He could have if had only, a career. If only he was born in the modern times. Now, Everything was also always someone else's fault, and he never did anything wrong. I mean, just like every annoying quality a guy could have, Charles had it. And yeah, and he wasn't even hot enough to get it, <laughs> quite frankly. Now, Charles needed a job to, cre- to treat Carol to these things. There was one story I heard where I can't remember why, but he got some money and he took them to a steakhouse dinner. And I was like, yeah. And of course, like they got like a porterhouse steak. Like they like lived it up at the steakhouse. Now, he also needed to pay for this hot rod that he co bought with his dad. I, I have to say this little hot rod side story here. <laughs> I oh, I've never forgotten this. But like in the early days of the internet, I saw like a, a one of those news story where it's like a scare news story to like get you scared about the internet. Oh. And it was this little boy who had um, done a Google search or whatever the search engine was. I don't know if Google was out yet. And it, he accidentally came across porn because oh, he no. had searched for an innocent term. But hot the internet, Rod. It was Hot Rod. <laughs> <laughs> he searched Hot Rod and got back all these pornography links. And I just like never forgot this like little boy. He's like, like, first of all, it's like maybe uh, what, what porn leads to hot rod, <laughs> like hot rods. I just imagine like a very red, angry penis. 
Yeah, it was just like so funny because the dad and the son were so like upset about it. And it was just like the a son very... was not upset. I know. I was thinking like maybe the son really was looking for hot rods. <laughs> But he had to pretend like it was accident. Uh, Anyway, so he gets this hot rod and he decides he's going to teach Carol to to drive, even though she is too young to drive. She's like 14 years old at this point. She gets into a minor car accident in the hot rod and Charles' dad, who is the co-owner, is pissed because obviously he's the one who ends up paying for the damage to the other car. This causes a huge fight between father and son and Charles is kicked out of the house. Now he moves into the boarding house where his friend Bob is living with his now wife, Barbara Fugate. He, uh, Charles at this point becomes even more obsessed with his relationship with Carol after he gets kicked out. Like now this is like all he has going. He also quits his job at the paper company where he was working and starts to work as a garbage man. This only escalates Charles. Charles. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene his feelings of despair, he begins to think his only way out is to turn to a life of crime like robbing banks or something. Now, another book about the case called Born Bad talks about Charles's frustrations when he becomes a garbage man. Quote, every day on his route, collecting the garbage from across town where the middle and upper classes of Lincoln, Nebraska lived, he saw what he was being excluded from. While heaving heavy stinking sacks of trash for minimum wage, Starkweather came to the realization that for him, there was one great leveler of class, one in which he would find himself equal with the rest of society, which had oppressed, dominated, and alienated him, a method by which he would find retribution. Dead people are all on the same level. 
He was also at this point desperate to marry Carol and move to Washington State where his brother Leonard lived. Carol's parents found out about their plans to marry, and Marianne, Carol's stepdad, said that if that happened, not only would they have the marriage annulled, they would have Charlie arrested for statutory rape if he tried it. Charlie needed money and so that he and Carol could run away and be together forever. On November 30th, 1957, Charles tried to buy a stuffed dog for Carol at the local gas station. He didn't have enough money and asked if he could purchase the stuffed animal on credit, but the gas station attendant refused. Charles was humiliated and furious. His determination to get back at everyone who looked down on him was now set in stone. Even better, getting revenge could be combined with getting money. In the early morning hours of December 1st, Charles got a 12-gauge shotgun he had taken from Bob Von Bush's cousin and some shells that he had bought for it and drove back to the gas station that had refused him credit. Robert Culvert, the 21-year-old who Charles felt had humiliated him the day before, was on duty at the station by himself. Colvert was working on a carburetor when Charlie came into the gas station. He sold him a pack of camels and Charlie drove off. A few minutes later, Charlie turned the car around and drove back to the gas station. This time, he bought a pack of gum, got into his car, and drove off again. Now, he parked close by and put on a bandana tied over his face and a hunter's hat to cover his red hair. Then he walked back into the station with a loaded shotgun and a canvas bag for the money from the register. Colvert was now in the back working on a car when he felt the barrel of a shotgun in his back. They went back to the front and Colvin... I'm sorry, Colvert opened the cash box. Next, Charles demanded that he open the safe, but Colvert didn't have the combo. Charles then told him to get in the car and drive. They drove toward... <laughs> I, I only saw this one place, but I have to include this detail. One thing I read said that they drove toward Bloody Mary's house, and Bloody Mary was a crazy old woman who fired a shotgun full of rock salt at anyone who trespassed on her property. <laughs> Damn. I was like, I love Bloody Mary. Why doesn't she have her own book? I would love her book. Who the fuck is Bloody Mary? (laughs) But I only saw it one place, so who knows? But we we can all believe. Uh, They were in a nearby abandoned field when Charlie forced Colvert out of the car. According to Charlie, a struggle ensued, and he had no choice but to shoot Colvert in self-defense. Now, at some point, he tries to get up again after being shot, and, and Charlie shoots him again, and he's dead. He had a wife at home who was pregnant with their first child, by the way. He's only 21 years old. And Charlie got $100 in the robbery. Yeah. Now, the murder of this gas station attendant was obviously a major news story. Starkweather actually repainted his car and changed the tires to avoid detection. Eventually, the murder and robbery is blamed on a transient, so the heat is off. Charlie Starkweather, but the thrill of killing was just getting started. According to the book, he had money, he had a girl, he had killed and not been bothered by it. It gave him an enormous feeling of power. He now operated outside the laws of man. He felt as if he were invisible and could just and could do just as he pleased, take what he wanted. The law was helpless against him. Now, Charles would later say that he told Carol about this murder, claiming that he initially said he had just robbed the gas station and that someone else had killed him. But he said Carol wasn't fooled, though, and she actually got off on it, and it brought them closer together. It was at that point he felt like they had this brief period to be together ahead of them, and it was all or nothing. He had no job now. Her parents were even more against them, partially because they had heard rumors she was pregnant and were really making extra efforts to keep them apart. The couple were desperate to be together. On Tuesday afternoon, January 21st, 1958, 
Starkweather went to the outskirts of Lincoln in the poor tract home area where Carol lived with her parents. He also brought the 22 rifle with him. What happened is based on Charles's account, pretty much, so keep that in mind. He claims that he went to the doors and Velda, who is um, Carol's mom, answered. He says that he wanted to go hunting with Carol's stepmom, Marion Bartlett, in order to make amends. As a peace offering to Velda, he brought two carpet samples he had found on his garbage route. Carpet but, samples? Yes. I guess maybe you could use them as little rugs back in the day, like if you had a big enough piece of I just carpet. imagine like a little tiny square. I think they were slightly bigger, but yeah, I have no idea. I mean, either way, it's a pretty low ball gift. <laughs> like, I don't know why he thought that would be like, oh, come right in. This person who's statutory raping my daughter. <laughs> Carpet samples. Like, you should have said that sooner. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. Velda was unreceptive to Charles's offering. They got into a huge fight. They called both of them at this time. They were like, you're a bum. You can't support Carol. Like, what are you doing? You're a loser. That kind of stuff. Obviously, this is like the way to Charles to infuriate Charles because he already feels super slighted by everything. Charles claims that during that first argument, Velda hit him. He says that he, he left the house at that point, but he had to return because he left the rifle. Now, this time he comes back, Marion, the stepdad, like opens the door. And from what I read, like he literally kicks him in the ass, pushing him down the stairs at the door, like kicks him out of the front door. No, that's embarrassing. <laughs> Dude, they're humiliating Charles. And you know what? I, I can't say he doesn't deserve it. Now, Charles says, like when he next comes back, because he leaves again, uh, he, I'm sorry, he leaves again. He's so furious. He goes to a payphone, payphone, calls Marion Bartlett's place of employment and tells them that Marion is sick and won't be at work for a couple of days. Fuck. Yeah. Now, when he goes back, Carol has a, has gotten back from school. She's at school. <laughs> like, if your girlfriend is at school, <laughs> not like even, elementary. <laughs> not even high school. Yeah, not even high school. Like, if you have to wait for your girlfriend to get home from school, she's too young for you. <laughs> Come on. I'm not talking about college, obviously, but like, seriously. Now, Carol's at home. Obviously, her parents are like, your boyfriend is fucking coming here all the time with carpet samples and guns. Like, what the fuck? They're fighting and screaming in the house. Charles like comes in and fucking joins in the fray. Velda is so upset that she, because she thinks Carol is pregnant, like, you know what I mean? Like, she's not pregnant, by the way. And this is actually a rumor that Charles started. Ew. Yeah. So she's furious. Velda slaps Charles in the face. And at that point, Charles grabs his gun, like in a threatening manner against Velda. Marion, the stepdad, walks in the room with a claw hammer. Charles turns to him and shoots him in the head immediately. Well, now the stepmom's really not going to go for this. Yes. Now, at this point, Velda comes at Charles with a huge knife. Like, she goes into the kitchen and comes at him with a huge knife. He shoots her right in the face and then hits her on the head with the butt of the rifle as she's crawling on the floor trying to reach her baby. The baby (gasps) is there, by the way, the two-year-old. Oh, my God. The baby is obviously screaming and crying. Charles hits the toddler, Betty Jean, with the rifle butt as well. <gasps> yeah. And the baby obviously stops crying. All the victims will be event- eventually be stabbed as well. He, now, So he killed that toddler. Yes. I hate this guy, does he? Starkweather would later say, 
quote, I picked up the knife that the old lady had, started to walk in the bedroom, and the little girl kept yelling. I told her to shut up, and I started to walk again, and just turned around and threw the kitchen knife I had at her. They said it hit her in the throat, but I thought it hit her in the chest. I went on into the bedroom. Mr. Bartlett was moving around, so I tried to stab him in the throat, but the knife wouldn't go in, and I just hit the top part of it with my hand, and then it went in. So he's just very casually talking about stabbing people, you know, how sociopaths are. Uh, Carol would later say that she had broken up with him earlier and was frozen in fear as he attacked her family. Now, Velda's body is dragged to the old, like they have an outhouse, like that's how poor this neighborhood is. So he drags Velda's body, it's wrapped in a quilt, to the outhouse, shoves it down the toilet opening, and her legs are like sticking out. Like it's like they thought she'd fit down there, but she obviously it's not that deep. Right. So her legs are sticking out. There's um the baby is put in a box, like a garbage box, and put in the outhouse with the mom. They move the body of Marion Bartlett and dump it into a chicken coop, which is right by the outhouse. Now, Carol and Charlie clean up the blood and mess inside and spent the rest of the evening drinking Pepsi and eating potato chips. Hanging out at the house. Yeah, not only do they hang at the ch- house that night, Rachel, they live there for almost a week after the murders while the parents' bodies are rotting in the backyard. So where'd they shit? <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that. Where did they go to the bathroom? Is there another outhouse, maybe? Maybe they just went outside. I have no idea. I don't know. See, that's the kind of investigative journalism <laughs> we bring you. I'm really sorry I didn't think about that. I've been very tired. That is a question, where'd they shit, that I should have been on top of. <laughs> I Forgive me, please. <laughs> They shit in the Pepsi bottle, okay? I didn't want to say it. That's a small opening, Desi. (laughs) Now, obviously, family members began to be concerned. It's like a close-knit family. They kind of all live near each other. So you know you're in the same neighborhood. You go visit a lot. Carol turns them away, saying that they all have the flu. She even puts a sign on the front door saying, Stay away. Everybody is sick with the flu. Signed, Miss Bartlett. Now, someone points out in one of the articles I read that it's, it was signed Miss Bartlett. And it's like, obviously, she would have put Mrs. Bartlett. Like, so that was already sort of a, a suspicious detail to some people. One person she turned away was her sister, Barbara, who had come with her newborn baby. So Carol basically said to her, oh, I'd let you in to see mom and dad, but you don't want to get the baby sick. Right. So Barbara was kind of like, okay, but she was still very suspicious. Now, at some point, Barbara becomes extremely like frightened and convinces her husband, Bob Von Bush, to go again with Charles's brother, Rodney, to investigate. This time, Carol tells them that they had to leave. She says, please don't try to get in. Mom's life will be in your hands if you do. Now, the guys go to the police at this point. The police show up and they talk to Carol and she tells them that the family has the flu. When the police ask why the brother-in-law called the police on her, she's like, oh, they don't get along. and he, He's always trying to get my family. They believe Carol and they leave. Now, they, the, the, the Von Bush, I'm sorry, Bob Von Bush, he like calls the police after this and he's like, what the fuck? And he like gives them all these things like they haven't been seen in days. They would never go on vacation without telling us, da, 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 da. And the police are basically like, mind your own business. <laughs> like, Dude. Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? The next day, Guy Starkweather, Starkweather, that's Charlie's father, sends his daughter, Levita, who is a friend of Carol's, um, 
over seeing if she gets like more information from Carol. Carol tells her in a low whisper, some guy is in the back with Chuck. He has a Tommy gun. I think they're going to rob a bank. Now she comes home and tells her dad that they should call the police, but the dad's like, oh, she's just making up stories. That can't possibly be true. Now, eventually, Pansy, who is Carol's grandmother, comes over to her daughter's house, and Carol tells her, go home, Grandma. Oh, Granny, go away. Mommy's life is in danger if you don't, like frustrated with her grandma. The grandma is fucking pissed, and she tells Carol, if you don't open this door this second, I'm going to town and getting a search warrant. You've got Chuck in there with you, and don't try to tell me you don't. Now, Carol refuses to let her in still, and Pansy goes to the police. The police finally are like, fine, we'll go look at the house. They go to the house, and I guess Charles and um, Carol are gone or are hiding. The house is empty. They don't go inside because they don't have a search warrant, but they kind of peek through the windows and like poke their head in kind of stuff. Nobody smells the rotting stench from the outhouse? Nope. Now, no one... Because no one was there, um, they drive Pansy home and tell her to mind her own business. Now, Guy at some point sees that the car he shares with Charles is missing, so he tries to help by filing Charles, I'm sorry, charges against Charles, like saying, oh, my son stole my car kind of thing. Uh, he goes to the police to file this um, whatever charge. Charles has charges. <laughs> yeah, Charles and charges. Um, he is told to go home because they smell liquor on his breath, and they're like, go home, sleep it off. <laughs> the cops really don't want to do work here. Now, Bob Von Bush demands at some point that the police not just search the house, but search the whole fucking property. They refuse, so he and Rodney go back to the house and are basically like, fuck the police. Now, Bob Von Bush and Rodney go to the house, and they go in the backyard, and they start smelling something. They initially are like, oh, maybe that's just outhouse smell because they didn't have an outhouse. So they're like, I don't know. That's, that fucking sucks to have an outhouse. But it's obviously more than the outhouse. They open the outhouse and make the gruesome discovery and then and see the chicken coop uh, shortly after. Now the police are obviously very interested in what's going on here. Jesus Christ. They send out an APB looking for Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugate, who had already fled town. Um, now, at this point, Carol is being described as a hostage. They don't know if she's a hostage necessarily or if her body is somewhere else or what the hell is going on. So... The couple are trying to find shelter with one of the Starkweather's old family friends, a 72-year-old man named August Meyer. He has a farm that's just outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. When they arrive, their car actually gets stuck in like this dirt road is like muddy. So their car gets stuck. Remember, this is January, so it's like snowy and kind of wet and muddy. They like just leave the car there and walk to this guy's place. Now, at some point, we don't really know what happened, but Charles claims that August tried to shoot him and his gun jammed, forcing Charles to shoot him in self-defense. He also shoots Meyer's dog as it ran away across the snowy meadow. So I don't really know how that's self-defense. That's mean. (laughs) Seriously unnecessary. Now, Charlie then carries August's body to an outhouse and hides it under a blanket. He and Carol go inside Meyer's home, steal money and guns, eat his food, sleep, you know, have a little nap. The next day, they got the car out of the mud and return, um, like drive to the home on a different road to get more supplies from the house. When they leave, they take the same mud road and get stuck again. Come on. They're literally the dumbest criminals ever. Now, 
they take their weapons and leave everything else in the car and just leave the car there because they literally can't fucking get it out of the mud. It's a good thing the cops are so dumb, too. (laughs) Seriously. Now, they go to the main road and try to hitchhike, so they hide their guns behind their back and hitch a ride. A 17-year-old named Robert Jensen and his 16-year-old girlfriend, whose name is Carol King, uh, stop to give them a lift, and they're just like really helpful teens. Shortly after taking off, uh, Jensen feels a shotgun at the back of his head. Charlie demands money. Carol admits to holding a rifle on him at some point. He forces Jensen to drive back towards Myers Farm, where there's an abandoned storm cellar called the cave by locals. Now, just this is kind of pieced together because no one knows exactly what happened, but Jensen's body is found at the stair, the bottom of the stairs going down into this storm cellar. He has six bullets in the back of his head. Um, Carol's body, I'm sorry, Carol King, not uh, Carol. Her body is on top of his body at the bottom of the stairs. She's been shot once in the head. And when her body is found, she's half naked. Her jeans and panties are down around her ankles. She's also been stabbed repeatedly in the abdomen and pubic area. There's no evidence of semen in or around her vagina, however. When asked why she was undressed later, Charles will say that it was temptation. But he says he denied raping her. Now, supposedly, there's a few different stories that Charles claims about what happened here. He says that while this is happening, Carol was sitting in the car. He also then attributes the mutilation of um, King's body to Carol, who was so angry that Charles found her sexually attractive that she wanted to like stab her or like assault her or, or deform her in that way. Another time, Charles claims that Carol also shot and killed the girl um, when he was away from the scene for a few minutes and he just tossed her body down the stairs. Now, the two bodies of the teens are left in that storm cellar and Charlie and Carol take off in Jensen's car at this point. The initial plan, as I said, was to go to Washington State where Charlie had a brother, but instead they drove back to Lincoln. They actually drive past Carol's home and they see all the police activity outside of her home, eventually parking in the rich section of Lincoln and sleeping in their car. The following day, January 28, 1958, Starkweather's car has been spotted in the mud at the Meyer farm, and shortly after, the bodies of Meyer and the two teenagers are found. Now, a major manhunt is underway across the Midwest. People are panicking, buying guns, and hunkering down in their homes. Carol and Charlie's pictures are on the front page of like every newspaper, and she's still at this point being seen as a hostage. The search has expanded into neighboring states, but Carol and Charlie are just back in Lincoln. So they're like looking at all the neighboring states like Wyoming, and they're literally where they started. They haven't like gone far. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program. Now, because Charlie was very familiar with this wealthy section of Lincoln that he was a garbage man in, he knew exactly the home he wanted to hit up for more money and a new car. The mansion of C. Lauer Ward, a 47-year-old CEO in steel and banking. That morning, Clara Ward, Lauer's wife, and Lillian Fenkel, her maid, their maid, sorry, were home, as were their Chesapeake Bay retriever, Queenie, and a small poodle named Susie. When Lillian Fenkel answered the door, Charlie points a gun at her. Carol stays in the car during this, uh, during this part. He orders Lillian to lock up Queenie in the basement. Now, the maid was deaf, so she actually had trouble understanding uh, Charles. At some point, she hands him a pad and a pencil, and Charles um, basically tells, he, he's like borderline illiterate himself, and he writes, sit down and shut up. So she sits down and basically doesn't say anything. Now, she was making breakfast for her boss, Clara Ward, at the time. So Clara comes into the kitchen and Charles assures her that nothing bad will happen. Clara is basically like very agreeable, like I'm going to cooperate. So at this point, Charlie has Carol come into the house. He tells Mrs. Ward to fix her some coffee. Carol then goes into the library and falls asleep. Charlie orders Clara to fix him breakfast, even demanding waffles. What a dick. Yeah. So Mrs. Ward keeps her cool. She's very gracious to Charles, um, which is very satisfying for him. The garbage man being treated like the king of the house, like by the rich person, like, you know, one of the richest women in town. Around 1 p.m., Clara asks for permission to go upstairs and change her shoes. Charles goes up and says that he's seeing what was keeping her or why she was taking so long and says that when he opened the door, she had armed herself with a 22 caliber rifle and shot at him and missed. At that point, he says he threw a knife at her and stuck her in the back and then stabbed her repeatedly in the neck and chest. Now, as he's dragging Clara's body into the next bedroom, the, do- the poodle starts barking at him and he breaks the poodle's neck with the butt <gasps> of a gun. Yes. Uh, so after killing Clara, he calls his dad and tells his dad to tell Bob Van Bush that he's going to kill him for interfering with Charlie's relationship with Carol. Then he sits down and writes a really long letter to the law only. Now, this is kind of um, a confession, but it, it's almost like his, like, you know, what is it? The manifesto. <laughs> like, not as like, it's like a much more crude manifesto. In it, he says... I and Carol, and this is his writing, so it's a little disjointed. I and Carol are sorry for what this happened because I have hurt everybody because of it, and so has Carol. But I'm saying one thing. Everybody that came out there was lucky they're not dead, even Carol's sister. So he's basically saying, you're all lucky. We didn't fucking kill you too. That's the gist. Now, later the two of them load um, the black 1956 Packard that belongs to the um, ward uh, Clara Ward. They load it with food and like Carol supposedly gets some suitcases of like clothes and they get other valuables. Around 5.30 p.m., the Lincoln Journal arrives on the front doorstep and they're thrilled because they're on the fucking cover. He says, hey, Carol, get a load of this. We're stars. We made the front page of the journal. This is like a great moment for them. Carol even clips out some articles and puts them in her pocket. This is so sad. Yeah. A half hour later, C. Lauer Ward comes home from work and he basically 
is at the barrel of a shotgun. They scuffle and Charlie, you know, obviously gets the upper hand and he shoots the he shoots C. Lauer Ward dead. Um, then they turn on the maid Lillian Fenkel. Carol and Charlie tie her up to a bed and stab her to death. Charlie claims that Carol killed the maid and Carol will claim that Charlie did it. Now, the next day, Ward's cousin and business associates are like, where is he? They call the house around noon. They go over to the house and they find the dead bodies um, and they hear the dog that's barking in the basement. Like the one dog that got locked up earlier, Queenie, is still alive. Now, this guy is very rich, obviously, and very powerful, powerful. So the governor is called at this point because this is his friend. He calls out the National Guard. The National Guard is cruising the streets with Jeeps with mounted shotguns. Parents are like literally in their houses with guns, keeping their children safe. The city is completely sealed off and a block by block search begins. The FBI also starts an investigation and a thousand dollar reward is offered by the mayor. Aircraft are sent to help look for the ward's black Packard at this point. Carol and Charles have driven all night, though, so they're well ahead of the game, and they actually finally cross over the border into Wyoming the next morning. This is the 29th of January, 1958. Twice on the road, they're reported to police as acting suspicious, but nothing comes of either report. Along the way, they're looking for a car to steal and finally come across Merle Collison, a traveling Montana shoe salesman who is sleeping in the back of his car parked along the highway which I guess is probably common when you had to drive all night. You just pull over and sleep in the back. Now, Charles wakes up the salesman to announce that they're going to trade cars. But uh, according to Charles, the salesman tries to fight him and he gets shot a number of times in the head, neck, arm, leg. So he does eventually say that Carol is the one who shot the traveling salesman. Now, Collison is dead in the front passenger seat. Carol's in the back. Starkweather tries to start the car, but he can't figure out how to release the emergency brake. Jesus. A few minutes later, um, a young man named Joe Sprinkle sees the two cars and thinks that, did they get into an accident? Do they need some help? He pulls over to help them. The minute he comes up to the car, Charles points a gun at him and says, raise your hand, help me release the emergency brake or I'll kill you. When the guy, Joe Sprinkle, sees the dead man slumped in the passenger seat, he realizes that he needs to get the gun away if he wants to stay alive. Like he's not going to live through this if he doesn't fight Starkweather. He's a big guy. Uh, They struggle for the gun. He literally drags Starkweather out by the gun into the road. They're like fighting in the road over the gun. While they're struggling over the gun, a Wyoming deputy sheriff named Bill Romer comes upon the scene and stops. When he stops, Carol immediately jumps out of the back seat, runs up to him and says, take me to the police. (laughs) He's killed a man. So she like immediately turns on Charles the minute she sees the cops come. By this time, Charles has run uh, back to the Packard and he's driving back towards the town of Douglas. Uh, Romer orders a roadblock and begins pursuit with Carol in the car. Another car carrying a Douglas police chief named Ansley and a sheriff named Earl Heflin. They're like on this on the road together when they hear this call for help. They see the Packard racing by them on the road to Douglas, and those two men turn around and start chasing it at speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour. Now, this is like a real fucking shootout. The, sh- the sheriff or whatever, Heflin, shoots out the back window at, th- at the pack- Packard. Um, Starkweather comes to an abrupt halt right in the middle of the highway. 
The two lawmen pull up behind the Packard and they're like waiting for him to get out of the car. They tell him to put his hands up, but he doesn't. So they shoot like near his feet. (laughs) It's like one of those like dance, like shooting near his feet to get him to drop. This time they tell him to lie on the ground, but Charles starts to reach into the back of his pants. Obviously the cops are like, what is he pulling out? And they shoot him again. This time Charles does lie down uh, on the ground and he kind of basically gives up. Meanwhile, Carol's in the car with the other um, sheriff or whatever he was, and she's telling him everything. She's like, this guy killed my mom. She killed my stepdad. She killed my baby sister. She killed this guy, this guy from the farm, the two teenagers. She's like laying it all out in this fucking car. Now, someone speculates later that they, Carol was under the impression if Charles ever was going to be caught, he would never surrender and be killed. So in their their opinion, she's like, he's going to be dead. Now's my chance to act like I'm the complete victim here. Right. That kind of thing. Now, Charles did not stop, though, because he was giving up. He actually thought he had already been shot and was bleeding, but it was actually just a cut from his the like window exploded when it was shot and he got cut on his ear and was bleeding, but he thought he had been shot and was desperate for help. That's why he like eventually gave up. This disgusted the officers. Heflin on stand would later say he thought he was bleeding to death. That's why he stopped. That's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. Now, both of them are arrested and put in County jail. Um, Charles's arrest is like on camera, like him being taken into the fucking police station. And it's, this is from the book. Bloodied, in chains, shaggy-haired, a cigarette dangling from his lips, wearing his black leather motorcycle jacket, tight black denim pants, blue and white cowboy boots with a butterfly design under the toes, he was a perfect-looking young rebel killer, the first American teenage spree killer caught on camera. No, if it was anyone but this guy, that would be like kind of like hot. <laughs> Seriously, wait, can I just say? And like, there's a lot of pictures, and we'll post some. But like, he always has a cigarette like barely hanging on his lip. That Which was, is such a hot look. That was such a <laughs> signature move, like in the old days. To have that cigarette, it's like, I don't barely hold in it here. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, like cigarettes will stick to your lip. But, yes. But when they're lit, it's like, that's a little dicey. It's like a weird thing to see because it does kind of look cool. But is it, yeah, but like who decided? They're like, I'm just so casually smoking. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, I don't fucking care if it falls. <laughs> burn this place to the ground like what is that (laughs) who knows now here's an interesting thing from charlie's perspective he doesn't have too many great options he in his opinion he's like i could go to the gas chamber in wyoming for the murder of merle collison or i could go to the electric chair in nebraska for all of the killings that he did there now he eventually will choose to be extradited to nebraska at the end of january 1958 The thing that he didn't know, though, was that the governor of Wyoming was a death penalty opponent, and he probably would have just commuted his sentence to life in prison, so he should have stayed in Wyoming. He actually had to sign his expedition papers. Extradition? Extradition papers to go back to Nebraska and be tried. So he, like, signed his own death warrant, basically. Like, he should have stayed in Wyoming, but he didn't fucking know. I mean, not that I'm defending him. He should die. I don't fucking care. (laughs) Uh, now Carol, meanwhile, she's maintaining that she was a hostage throughout the entire ordeal and that she kept going with Charlie because she feared that her family, he would kill her family if she didn't. Now, obviously the problem with that story is that she already admitted to being present for all of these murders. So now she's trying to say like, I thought he was going to kill my family if I didn't go along with everything. But she told the cop in the car, all the murders. And as I mentioned before, 
she had newspaper clippings in her pants or whatever, and they found those on her. So she had seen the stories as well. Now, Carol acted shocked when she found out her parents were dead. Like she also acted shocked. I mean, she's 14, so I'll, you know, whatever. But she also admits to um, taking the wallet um, of Robert Jensen, the teenager in the car, yeah, uh, and holding a gun on Carol at some point. And that's really, those admissions really sealed her fate because then she was participating in a robbery that ended up in murder. And that's a death penalty regardless of how much she participated or whatever. In the other murders. Yes. So they basically only will be charged with this Robert Jensen murder. They don't do the whole thing. I don't know why. You know how it is. They always like pick... Like, let's do this one case. Because uh, I think it, it indicted both of them. That was the only one they could get her on. Yeah. Um, so they're both charged with first-degree murder and murder while committing a robbery. Since both were being tried as an adult, both of them are facing the possibility of the electric chair. Now, Charles' trial begins on May 5th, 1958. And he does nothing to help his case. His lawyers basically want to put together like an insanity defense, but he refuses. We did like a, didn't we do something on this for that when we did that um, true crime today? Yes, we type did. Thing? Yeah, we did Charles Trackweather. He refuses to be like thought of as insane or dumb or having a low IQ. <laughs> he doesn't want any of that evidence. Like that's more of a stigma than being a fucking psychopath to him. So they kind of do it without his permission. They have psychologists come on and testify that there's just something wrong with him. His mom actually comes on the stand and testifies that the trouble began when he met Carol. Like even the parents are like, we don't want our son to be insane. <laughs> like it's wow. just such a bizarre thing. He takes the stand in his own defense, which obviously is so rare these days. He basically throws Carol under the, the bus. He says she, mar- she killed Merle. She killed Carol King. He describes her as the most trigger-happy person he's ever met. Now, initially, Charles, when he is um, arrested, he tells authorities that Carol had nothing to do with the crimes. His first words to them on the subject when he was being taken into jail was, don't be rough on the girl. She didn't have anything to do with it. But as time went on and he realized that Carol was trying to throw him under the bus, then he was like, fuck her. I'm going to implicate, implicate her in the crimes as well. Uh, at this point, he says she could have escaped at any time she wanted. I left her alone lots of times. Sometimes when I would go in and get hamburgers, she would just be sitting in the car with all the guns. There would have been nothing to stop her from running away. One of the defense attorneys uh, makes this really like over the top, like emotional plea during the closing arguments, and he try- he kind of tries to like tie in all of the societal problems and ill ills. He says this boy is a product of our society. Our society that spawned this individual is looking for a scapegoat. Carol Fugate should get the same punishment as this lad, and I can tell you right now that she's never going to get the death penalty. His life, my life are almost parallels until our 19th birthday. I stand here and weep unashamedly. I hate everybody and everything. I could lick anybody. Society treated me exactly as it treated Charles Starkweather, but the good Lord gave me possibly a little better parents. (laughs) So he's basically saying, I agree we live in a society... Right, he's like there. I could have been Charles Starkweather, but, but he I wasn't. Had, That's yeah, the point. <laughs> yeah. It's like okay, like what's your point? So he tries to like he goes on about the the electric chair. Like, do you really want to see this boy with smoke coming out of his head? Da 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 da. Like his like he tries to scare them off of the electric chair. Like he's nineteen years old, etc. He's basically begging for the life of Charles Starkweather, not trying to get him off, but like not avoiding the death penalty. 
The jury makes its decision in 24 hours, guilty on both counts of first-degree murder, and they specifically ask for the death penalty. Wow. Now, at Carol's trial, her defense is basically being built on the fact that she was a hostage and none of this was her doing. She was under the influence of this guy. She was frightened for her life, etc. cetera. Uh, it was not a very credible defense because she had done so many things and lied and looked suspicious um, and she basically gets convicted based on the small evidence that they did have of her admitting to taking that wallet. Charles actually con- testifies against her at the trial. At some point, uh, he said it, he had said previously to the trial, if I die, then Carol should be sitting on my lap. He's asked about that on the stand. And at this point, he says, I don't care if she lives or dies. Uh, Carol does take the stand in her own defense Two, she's not that great of a witness. She comes off angry and hostile. She plays dumb a lot and just looks annoying, kind of. So she doesn't really do herself any favors. But she's a 14-year-old girl. I mean, right. it's insane. She's like the youngest person to go on trial for first... At this point, the youngest woman to go on trial for, for murder, I In think. the country? I think maybe, yeah. Now, she doesn't get the death penalty. She receives a life sentence instead of the electric chair. So Charles is on death row. He has a few stays of executions. One is at the request request of Carol because she wants him to confess that she's actually innocent, but he refuses. And then the second one is for some other reason. But eventually it's, uh, you know, the death penalty thing. It's like it's happening. Now, he does actually um, have a last meal. And I did look it up, what, what it was. What is it? <laughs> He chose cold cuts as his last meal. He got two slices of sausage and salami, a slice of roast beef, and a slice of turkey from the Jewel Deli counter. That's very keto. Yeah. Why the hell? Like no crackers? No carbs? (laughs) Nothing? Come on, Charles. He is put in the the electric chair and dies on June 25th, 1959. Now, Carol serves 17 and a half years at Nebraska Correctional Center for Women Uh, She is released in June of 1976 and eventually settles in Lansing, Michigan. She changes her name and she works as a janitor at a Lansing hospital. In 2007, she marries a man named Frederick Clare. They basically live a private, quiet life. Um, She really doesn't speak that much about the murder spree. Uh, She is involved in a serious car accident with her husband um, on August 5th, 2013. Her husband does die in that car accident. So that's kind of sad, I guess. Now she maintains her innocence. Uh, recently she has been trying to get pardoned from like her conviction. Like she does not even want to have that charge on her record anymore. In February of 2020, her pardon application, which was supported by relatives of the murder victims was denied. Um, She basically just wants to alleviate this burden of being known as a convicted killer. She's like 77 now. So she's pretty old, but she is still alive. And yeah, that's where we're at. Um, And as I mentioned, this was the inspiration for several movies. It was also the inspiration for Bruce Springsteen's song, um, Nebraska, the 1982 song, which is like a first person narrative of these um, killings. Did you see all the movies? Did you see California and Natural Born Killers? I mean, yeah, you had to. Yeah, I mean, and I I want to rewatch Badlands. I haven't seen that yeah, in Yeah, me too. I was going to watch it for tonight, but then I just didn't get a chance to watch all the movies. <laughs> I wanted to like watch them all again because I haven't seen any of these movies since 
forever. Like, yeah. I don't know if I've seen natural born killers in California, like since they came out. Right. Honestly. Right. No, but Badlands, like if you haven't seen it, it's, it's a classic movie and you should definitely. It's really see it. good. And it's, it's like all of these Midwest, like open field, like cinematography, like just beautiful it's movie. So beautiful. Yeah. And it's kind of cool to see Martin Sheen in like a really villainous role. <laughs> <laughs> and he's so young. He's really young because this is from like whatever, 1972, I think. Uh, yeah. And then the TV movie, I think, is on YouTube. I didn't get a chance to watch it, but I saw when I was watching some of the other things, you know, you see the sidebar of other related things. So I was like, oh, I want to watch that because Farouk was a block ha- ball. Sorry. Farouza Farouza ball. Bulk has like this insane black hair, like 50 style that just is like really funny. And she clearly just doesn't look 14 either. So it's like sort of like just a funny like look. We will see you guys on Friday. Yeah. For a mini episode. Cool. Sounds good. We'll post some pics. Yeah. Go check out our Instagram page for pictures from this episode. And we hope you guys have a great week. Bye. Bye.